Don't touch that dial. Welcome back to the Behind the Bits podcast. I'm still Scott Curtis, and we're up to episode four. My guest on this episode is Mark Scheffler, and boy, was he a real gift. This was a great interview. Uh, so when Mark was 10, his dad got the uh, three stooges to perform for his birthday. And when Mo dubbed him the fourth stooge, he knew what he wanted to do with his life. And that's a career in comedy, of course. As he got older, uh, he went to the Catskills uh, to work with some comics there as stage manager and all that. And uh, when he got thrown into doing it himself, uh, he just fell in love with doing stand-up comedy. He uh, was one of the first people at the Comedy Store, one of the first comics there, along with Jay Leno, Letterman, and all those folks. And his name's inscribed on the Wall of Fame. And that kind of led him to a uh, writing career that lasted for decades. Um, his film claim to fame, though, is his portrayal of Junior Stillo in the cult classic from Wes Craven, Last House on the Left, and that's the 1972 original version. He's written for television and movies such as Sister, Sister, Who's the Boss, <clears throat> Harry and the Hendersons, and many others. Mark also teaches comedy writing for the screen at Loyola. His love for stand-up has brought him back to the stage as Al Yid. Check out Mark and character in the show notes. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I'm hoping to... Uh, put out something that is good for all the comics out there if you like what you hear shoot me a note at scott at the btbpc.com if you don't like what you hear you can do the same thing um, we are on facebook at behind the bits podcast we are on twitter at the btbpc and we are on instagram at behind the bits podcast you can follow me on all those places I'm uh, really enjoying putting these out and would love to get some feedback. If you think you'd be a good guest or you know a good guest, shoot me an email or a message on Facebook. I'll be glad to talk to you. So without further ado, here is Mark Scheffler. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Behind the Bits podcast. This is Scott Curtis. And today I have Mark Scheffler with me. How you doing, Mark? I'm Okay. I'm quite okay, actually. Yeah. Well, you're. I think you're in a warmer climate than me. I think, Mark, you're in Bogota? No, actually, I am in a place called Santa Marta, Colombia, which is on the Atlantic Ocean, um, sitting in a wonderfully air-conditioned, king-size hotel room, um, staring at the Atlantic Ocean. Fantastic. My, my, my sister-in-law and our niece are at some beach doing something. <laughs> Well, that's great, and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. We we talked a little bit before, and uh, you don't know me, and uh, I just uh, pegged you for an interview, and you were nice enough to get it uh, scheduled on uh, just a few days after we talked, so that's great. Not a problem. I told you, you name-dropped Tom Dreesen, and that yep. really <laughs> get my I'm so I'm so glad I got him first so that I can, uh, I can uh, use him for everybody. I think it's uh, helped me a lot. So I just got done listening to your um, Eddie's uh, Eddie's Bar at the Improv interview. Yes, sir. And I I, I listened to it. Uh, I listened to the last half uh, this morning when I was on my way back home. And uh, obviously, you have had a pretty interesting career. Um, I without without having to ask you everything that Eddie asked you, I did want to. Uh, have the folks hear the uh, story 
of um, your Three Stooges birthday party? Okay. Um, I, I, I actually made a mistake on that show, not about the Three Stooges, about the date. Uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to now roll with the date that uh, somebody corrected me on. It wasn't my eighth birthday because they, they, they didn't appear till I, it was my 10th birthday. But okay. I still have the pictures. So, so what happened was I was a huge Three Stooges fan. You know, I'm 70 years old, so you're going back 60 years. Mm-hmm. The, their shorts were what we watched every day after school. And I, I always had this thing uh, about being funny because I recognized it at an early age that, that if you're a funny person, uh, most uh, uh, people will like you and big people will defend you and nobody will mess with you. And, and uh, so I, I kind of got into that. So uh, at, in the run up to my 10th birthday, my dad, you know, like parents do, said, what do you want for your birthday? So I just kind of like, uh, you know, ad libbed. I said, uh, the Three Stooges. <laughs> and he, he got them for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, turns out they were playing a date at the Holiday House in Pittsburgh. Uh, it, and he got a hold of them and offered them some money to do a Saturday afternoon uh, birthday party for me. And we had, a, I don't know, 50, 60 people there. Uh, um, they did their act and in the middle of it. They brought me up on stage, and uh, since I knew all the material, I started interacting with them, you know, like doing their bits, mm-hmm. and they were surprised, and then they rolled with it. So in the, at some point, Mo just stopped, put his hand on my head, and, and dubbed me the fourth stooge. <laughs> in that moment, in that, in that moment uh, which I can like remember like it was yesterday, I remember what it felt like. I'm standing on a stage. There's a mic on a mic stand in front of me. I'm holding onto the mic stand. I'm hearing laughter bounce back at me. I feel the, the, the lights on my face. I can't see shit because, you know, you've been on stage. You know what that's like. Mm-hmm. So, uh, 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 but I heard the laughter. I heard the applause. And I think from that moment forward, uh, I, I just kind of like aimed myself in this direction. You know, I just I said, fuck, this is it, man. This is what I want to do. Mm-hmm. That that story is great. And one thing that you can talk to all generations about is the Three Stooges. If you mention the Three Stooges, everybody knows about that. You know, there there's a big gap for me when I talk to some of the younger comics about, uh, you know, I, I tried to put a TV show into one of my bits, and I was trying to put a TV show that they would remember. So I'm going Dukes of Hazard, Chips, and all that kind of stuff. And nobody nobody even remembered the movies, let alone the shows. But you talk about Three Stooges, and they definitely make an impact. Well, the three, the three you know, in the world of comedy, the Three Stooges are, uh, are kind of iconic. I mean, uh, you know, they, they've got shit that, you know, like Mo Larry the Cheese, Niagara Falls, all that, all that stuff that they used to do that, uh, did uh, that they brought from their vaudeville act to the stage and, and I mean to, to the screen and figured out how to do those exact same things in a different medium. That's pretty fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. It's really cool. 
so after that, be, before I go any further, um, I told I told everybody that I listened to Eddie's Bar at the Improv, your interview there. Um, that's a really cool podcast, and if you are a comic, that is really one to listen to. So look that up because uh, it's he's got some great guests and he's got he's got some folks that everybody knows he's got some folks that have been around a long time and it's a really cool podcast so put that in your uh in your player and listen yeah eddie burke who is eddie of eddie's bar at the improv is a, is an old friend of mine and a good guy and he he's had you know uh, a unique perch behind that bar for the last 40 some years mm. he he you know he and and this podcast is his oral history of what he's seen and and heard. So it's it, you're right. It's a pretty interesting, especially if you're a comedian. You know, it's right. It should yeah, he he knows some stuff. So after the after the Three Stooges stuff, um, you, you know, I I obviously listen to the podcast just just for the benefit of the listeners here. What was it that? made you take the jump into stand-up comedy um you mean what what why did i do it yeah i uh, i always kind of wanted to live uh an out-of-the-box life you know like not i never wanted to have a real job or go to like i, I know it sounds terrible but i never wanted to go to work anywhere i wanted to just kind of exist on my own power mm-hmm. and uh, when you're a stand-up comedian, it's one of those jobs that if you can if you can get rolling, you can pretty much exist on your own energy. And and it, it you know because one of the great stresses in life uh, uh, I learned at a very early age what was when we're not in charge of our time mm-hmm. and when other people, for the sake of survival, other people own our time. So for whatever reason, I said to myself, you know. I know this and I don't want to do that. So I, I just got, I got luck. I'm really a lucky person. So to say to you, when is the first time? The first time I did it was the first time I had a chance to do it. Right. I never, you know, I, I, I spent a, a youth of watching Ed Sullivan, the Ed Sullivan show and comedians like Alan King and Jerry Lewis and, and uh, old school guys like Bernie Burns, and Larry Alford and mm. Al Lawrence and Freddie Roman, and, and all of these guys who, uh, as I said in the uh, improv thing, that those, are, those guys had uh, material limitations in the sense that their, their audience uh, wasn't, wasn't as expanded, except for like Jerry Lewis, you know, who, who was. But the mechanics of what they were doing, the, the, the stagecraft and the performance and the handling of audiences and the dealing with shit, those guys were just fucking brilliant, still are. Yeah. So, you know, the, so I watched and, I, you know, and I, I'm not a really athletic person. So these guys were my athletic heroes. You know, I, I had the same affection and, and uh, like uh, revere of stand-up comedians that, that a lot of kids when they're young have of athletes. Yeah. You know, uh, so these were my heroes. So I, I, um, I went to, to, I quit college after two years in Louisiana. So it was like, I started 67. So right, right before the second semester of my sophomore year, I just said, you know, I'm not fucking happy here. 
I went to college with David Duke, by the way, at LSU. So, you know, my my uh, educational claim to fame. Uh, Did you guys I hang? To, I used to debate debate him at a place called Free Speech Alley. Uh-huh. Uh What happened? You know, I I just um, I quit college and talked to my dad. In I, I'm from Pittsburgh originally, so I went went and talked to my dad, and he was always very supportive of me going into the entertainment. He was like the anti-father, right? He's, instead of saying, no, you need something to fall back on, he was like, no, no, do this. Get famous. Go. Get famous. Get rich. <laughs> get famous. It's okay. You know, we'll talk later. So he, <laughs> he, he gave me some advice, and he said, look, go to the Catskill Mountains. You know, my dad was very, very, he was an aluminum siding salesman, like, you know, like a very hip guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you want to hear... If you want to hear a story of what my life was like with my father, write a note down to yourself. Ask about the Jerry Lewis story. Okay. So, um, so he gave me, he said, look, here's some money. Go to New York. I'll buy you a ticket. But go to the Catskill Mountains. Get yourself a job. You'll, you'll talk your way into a job and get it and stay there and watch those comedians. And he was right. I went there and I was, I was able to con my way by lying and, and <laughs> misleading people about what skill I possess. And, and uh, you know, uh, I, I had got a job. I became the stage manager of the Raleigh Hotel uh, in South Fallsburg, which was uh, you know, not as big as the Concord, which was close by, but it was like the second biggest hotel in, in the mountains mm-hmm. and had talent, A-level talent. So I worked there, and while I was there, because I was the stage manager, I ran the lights and especially the spotlight, I saw like every fucking comedian on that circuit multiple times. I saw them when they were great. I saw them when they bombed. I knew what the new material, like I, not only that, I saw them so many times, I began to understand the construction of a stand-up act. I don't, again, like I, you know, I, I, I don't believe I intellectualized it like that back then, but I could tell when their acts were changing. I could tell when, you know, I learned to read audiences from these guys, mm-hmm. you know, when, you know, when, cause when you see some in a room of like 1500 people consistently, right. And this thing, this hunk works. And then one night this hunk doesn't work. That's not a fucking accident. There's a reason why mm-hmm. you just have to figure it out. Right. Yeah. So, I, and I understood the ebb and flow of material. I got an extraordinary education uh, uh, just, just watching. And in the, the time I was doing, I, I, I listened and learned how joke, how standup jokes were constructed. And, and that became for me the foundation of everything. And then one of the guys I worked with was a, a comedian by the name of London Lee, uh, uh, who, whose entire act was based on the premise that he was like the poor little rich kid. Right. Mm. And his father really was. Have you ever heard of London Lee? No, I'm talking. No. So back then, he was a a very successful uh, uh, comedian who had done the the, the Tonight Show. Because remember, the Carson Show back then was in New York. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, So he had done Merv Griffin. He had done Carson. He'd done a lot of TV shows. So he was very well known. And uh, uh, he was losing his road manager, the guy who worked with him, and he offered me a job. So I left the Catskills and went to work with him 
and he got me a, a place to stay and he got, you know, and I drove, ended up driving his car almost every day. So, and he paid me decent amount of money for the time. Uh, and I got a lot of clothes, a lot of custom made clothes. So it was a great gig. And I, I, with him, it started out where I was just his valet, like, like I drive and I carry his shit. And then every now and then I started out saying, Hey London, what do you think of this joke? And when there was one time I gave him a joke and he loved it. He just said, this is great. I'll do this tonight. So he did it and it got a big laugh and it became part of his act. And then I, I started to feed him jokes. And then we started doing a bit that he had and he felt comfortable with me. And then that led to one night we're at a, a hotel called the Neville. Again, very similar to the Raleigh, like, you know, somewhere between a thousand and fifteen hundred people in the audience. Mm -hmm. And we had this little bit that we did where halfway through his act, he would say to me, uh, uh, say to the audience, rather, uh, I'm a little thirsty. I need some water. And then he would turn to the wings and say, hey, Mark, Mark, bring me some water. So I come out with some water and then we do the bit. Right. Who am I? He would say, <laughs> I would say, you're the boss. And he said, who are you? I said, me, I'm nothing. And then he would say, well, what does that make me? And I said, that makes you the boss over nothing. <laughs> like you just did, the audience would laugh. Right? Yeah. So this particular night, we do the bit. He's sitting on a stool. We do the bit. And I turn to exit the same way I do all the time. And he whispers to me, hang on. And I turn. I said, what? He said, I'm a little tired, you know. You want to do your comedy? You want to do a few minutes? And, you know, wow. And the, I'm <laughs> on stage, right? I'm there. I'm fucking there. Mm -hmm. And it, it, I'm thinking to myself, well, look, man, you know, should I get off the pot? This is it. You either do it now or you don't do it at all. So I said, fuck yeah, you know, and I grabbed the mic and I did, I don't know, three, five, six minutes. And the audience seemed to like it. I got applause. And uh, I walked off and I leaned over to him and I said, was that okay? And he said, get the fuck off the stage. <laughs> now, now this, I think, is a teachable moment. You know, this is for the benefit of, of comics uh, coming up and wanting to know what to do. What you just talked about is something I talked to another very new comic about. And they uh, he had gotten... Um, invited to do an MC spot for a band, I think it was. And, um, he was scared to death. He says, he says, I'm not ready. And, and I agreed. I said, you, you know, you're not ready, but you have to push yourself. And as long as, as long as the job you take, isn't going to like ruin your cred, you should take it and get out of your comfort zone and find out what works and what doesn't work. And what you did is exactly that. Oh, yeah. I mean, you you have, the, you know, there, there are these moments in your life, especially when you're pursuing a career that's based on who you are. Right. Mm -hmm. So it, 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 as opposed to the day job thing. Uh, uh, but there are these moments in your life when because you're in, in this this arena where it's all you where you got to like say to yourself, yeah. Maybe I think I'm not ready, but who the fuck am I? The opportunity is here. The worst I can do is fail. So what? Um, right. You know, there you go. I've had bad shows. You know, I've had times when I write a joke and earlier on, not so much anymore, but uh, <laughs> um, I have to give myself some credit. Yeah, but you I've do. Yeah. Bad shows 
Where no, I I know when jokes work because I I've had to like feed a wife and kids by writing these jokes. So I I kind of s- siphon out the bullshit. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that I don't write it, I kind of know it when I see it, and I know. But you got to go through that. You you have to. It's a rite of passage. Do you ever watch um, the marvelous Mrs. Maisel? Uh, my wife and I don't miss it. We, we, I mean, we just devour seasons. We season three is done already. Dude, I, I, I don't, I, I didn't snort cocaine as fast as I snort those episodes. Yep. Right? <laughs> I, I, that's the best show about someone in stand up I've ever seen because it's, it's entertaining and it's got beautiful sets and the writing is just fucking brilliant mm-hmm. and and it's directed beautifully and it it really creates that a world you know you're you're there in that world mm-hmm. and i i would suggest anybody from any era of any age wanting to break into stand up watch that show from the beginning and understand the bridge between your stage life and your off stage life yeah that first show when you know knowing knowing when when you bomb and how to uh come back from that that first show here in the third season when she opened up for shy and uh she just she just bombed and yeah hey listen it's it's that's what i learned up in the catskills when i told when i mentioned that i saw guys comedians and women i saw them do material and kill with it and then the very next time same exact material and it tanks and after a while you know you you can't just keep saying well what does that happen you know <laughs> yeah you gotta, well what does that happen i don't know man why you keep asking why it happens figure it out now you know mm-hmm. so that that's what you got to do and you got to take chances you got you got to fucking take chances. Yep. That's you can't go unless you take chances. This is a risky business emotionally. It, oh, it is. Yeah. And yeah, you got, one of the things I found is that um people get uh emotionally attached to their bits and they they just won't let it go even though it 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 just dies all the time and you know because I think you understand because you were, you know, you were, uh, raising kids and a family, uh, with your jokes, you, you know, you got to treat it like a business. So if you, if you do it three times and it sucks, it's time to get rid of that joke. Nobody wants to be that, that writer in a writer's room at 11 o'clock at night on a final rewrite, pushing a joke for the sixth time that nobody laughed for five times. Yeah. (laughs) You learn not to do that because you don't want to be the thing that causes people to roll their eyes. Yep. You know, (laughs) that's not what you want. That is so true. So, um, you know, I, this is kind of a teaching podcast, but I, I just think it's totally cool. Um, your, uh, first movie role. Uh, can you go into that a little bit? Um, yes. Uh, one day when I was, uh, living in New York when I was, uh, in my early twenties and when I was about 20, uh, I had a manager, uh, uh, Lloyd Greenfield and associates, uh, Dick Towers was the guy who managed me. Um, he met, they managed Tom Jones and Engelbert Humperdinck. So 
You know, they were they were like a legit mm-hmm. firm. And one day I walked into uh, the office and uh, Dick said to me, uh, I have a movie audition for you. I said, sure. So he gives me an address and he gives me two names, a guy named Wes and a guy named Sean at some office between on, in the 40s, between 5th and 6th. And uh, so I go down there and I go into the office. I, I see these two guys uh, about my age, maybe a little older, one, the West guy and the Sean guy, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I read a scene and I head back to Dick's office. And by the time I had gotten back there, they uh, called and said, uh, we want him. And uh, now I'll tell you, Wes was Wes Craven. Yeah. And Sean was Sean Cunningham. Wow. And the film was uh, the original Last House on the Left, of which I was one of the four stars. Wow. And that's, I mean, that's just like horror movie um, gold right there. Apparently it is because <laughs> uh, it keeps... You know, it it really just keeps on going. Yeah. the The funny thing is, is um, if you know me, I am not. I'm I'm like an outlier. I don't care about like Star Wars or um, Marvel movies or anything like that. But I love old horror movies, and you know, really the '70s back is what I like. I like the old Hammer films and stuff like that. And there's a yeah. group of three of us that get together and talk about horror movies and the fact that i talked to you is just going to give me so much cred with those guys um they're going to fucking eat it up it's going to be great (laughs) no seriously it's like fucking amazing you know my my wife my current wife is my second wife she patty and i have been together like i think we're beginning our 17th year together Mm -hmm. so uh and she's colombian so her her, lived in la but she wasn't a horror movie fan, you know, like a slasher horror movie fan, you know, supernatural movies. Yes. Mm-hmm. So it, I've learned in my life that that uh, especially living in, in Los Angeles, there, there would come that point in, in every dating experience when I would uh, either fess up to being in last house or try to deny it. <laughs> yeah. <Okay. laughs> No, because it, it it's I've had an emotional roller coaster ride with it uh, uh, on the good side now, but so I, I told my wife about it, and that was it, that was right around the time that David Hess, who played my father in the film, mm-hmm. uh, David and I were were best friends. Uh, David got me into going to uh, a horror film. He, he took me to my first horror film convention, right? Mm-hmm. So I sat there. And he told me, he said, dude, you're not going to believe it. He said, I sit there and I, I, I sell my CDs and, you know, I sell my pictures. I said, you sell them? And he said, yeah. And he said, they have autographs and, you know, they give me this and that. And he said, do you have any pictures? And I said, no. He said, that's okay. We'll just sell your signature. And I said, <laughs> David, this, you know, you're out of your fucking mind. No one's going to do that. So <laughs> sure enough, we went to this place, this one that was in, in uh, L.A. near Universal. And Everybody, you know, these people came to David's table and he's signing his name and he's selling and and he would just point to me and go, oh, there's Junior, there's Junior. And all of a sudden I'm signing like arms and pictures, <laughs> pictures of me. Uh, I've signed breasts, men and women, uh, uh, you know, and once a German shepherd. Uh, oh, wow. uh, so, you know, it, it's, it, it, 
it's become this surreal fucking part of my life. Like a few times a year, I go to these conventions and I'm like celebrity in a box, you know, <laughs> my, my film career into a little box with some memorabilia and, and it's amazing. So yeah, I, you, you never fucking know. Yeah, that's, you know, that movie, that's one of them that lives on. It's up there with Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It just keeps going. We were before Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. And and the reason, the reason I think, and I've only recently discovered this, I'd say in the last, you know, three, four years, I began to hear from fans. I could never figure out why or how uh, young people continue to be attracted to this film like su- succeeding generations of younger younger people like 13 14 15 years mm-hmm. ago. I, I could i could never kind of figure figure that it didn't make any sense to me until one time a young girl like 13 14 came over with a copy of the film a dvd one of my signature and she she's the one who taught it to me she said my dad made me watch this film she said my parents made me watch this film because they wanted me to understand what could happen if I made wrong decisions. Uh, yeah. And it, and then I, then I started to hear that from a bunch of people in that same generation in that same general age group. So I think that's the reason I think that part of it is that, you know, parents who are horror film fans say to their kids, Hey, this is a great horror film or parents who are Wes Craven fans say, this is Wes Craven. I mean, there are a bunch of different reasons. But that one about it being passed on as a cautionary tale has made its way to me more than more than enough times that I shouldn't pay. I should pay attention to it. Mm-hmm. And that was Wes's first feature, right? Wes's absolutely first. Yeah. Feature. Yeah. Yeah. And yes. uh, he, you know, he went on to do Nightmare on Elm Street and all those all those movies oh. that everybody knows. And was a, a good guy. Yeah. Was a real really nice guy yeah i saw him i hadn't seen him in a while and i saw him about let's say about a year before he passed away we somebody had done somebody in la had done a uh, multimedia art rendering of moments from his films right mm-hmm. so they did him and they knew somebody who knew me so uh, wes and i ended up getting invited together and we spent a, a terrific half hour catching up and pretty much the same guy you know mm-hmm. yeah, yeah from from his interviews he just sounds like a regular guy just just totally. uh I'm just a, a, oh, yeah horror genius so knew how to tell a story you know that knew had, had an innate sense of story yeah well that i mean that's a cool story one question i have to ask because uh my buddies and i are really into practical effects um how how did they fuck up your teeth so bad was there something that they that stuck to them it's just it's just black wax okay and and it stayed it stayed during all those scenes none of it fell out remember that all those scenes took were shot over a period of 20 days so yeah what they do that they would do this they they put it on uh and get it where they like it take polaroids of it uh and keep the you know, like take three or four Polaroids of it so that they have them. Then they just recreate it every day. Yeah. It's, it's liquid in the, in the jar and then you, you paint it on uh-huh. and it's, a, it's called tooth wax. Okay, cool. 
Yeah, I that that's I've always wondered about that. You know, I've I've never done any practical effects myself, but I'm like, you know, how do you do that? So that's cool. Um, so obviously, you know, you um you you did stand up for a while. What what were your main clubs when you did when uh you kind of broke out of the cat skills thing? Well, what happened when I broke out of the cat skills thing was um, I was went from that to, to New York and I hung out at the improv and uh, just kind of watched and, and learned. Right. And at the same time, I was I was going out uh, and on auditions and doing that. And one of the auditions I had, I, I there was a, a commercial director in New York. Well, and he had the offices all over the world, but he was in New York at the time. Uh, Lee Lacey, he's the guy who did uh, uh, that famous uh, Coke NFL Mean Joe Green commercial. Oh, wow. Yeah. He's the guy who directed that, won a Clio for it. And he was, uh, I got to know Lee pretty well. He, he was a decent, very cool guy. He had this kind of international cool about him. You know, this is, he was one of these guys who was so like tapped in everywhere he needed to go. He never carried any luggage when he traveled internationally. Mm-hmm. He, had, he had a fucking car and an office and clothes. Everything he needed was in every place he needed to go. And if it wasn't, he'd have it sent there. Yeah. He was like, like the James Bond of fucking commercial directors. Right. <laughs> and, and he was a really cool guy and a nice wife and kids. And he was very fucking cool. So we, I did a commercial for him uh, um, called uh, for Metropolitan Life Assurance, and we kind of became friendly. Uh, and and um, so I, through Last House on the Left, discovered that uh, if you're in a movie, uh, um, you get girls pretty easily. Uh-huh. Weird, right? I sound so <laughs> old because I'm so happily married now, but I was, you know, 20 years old then. Mm-hmm. So... So um, because of Last House, they, they opened uh, uh, when it, after the Roger, you know about the Roger Ebert review, right? Yeah. That, yeah. I mean, you so, were, you, that, that film was supposed to be like shot, go to drive-ins and die. And, and Ebert just really, took it. It was supposed to be the film that people bought their snacks for the next film yeah. while it was, right? Yeah. Okay. So disgusting. So, uh, um, Hess and I are in New York and, you know, we're walking around fucking the city and seeing all these posters. And one, one day Roger Ebert writes a four and a half star review. And the next day there are lines wrapped around the block in Manhattan (laughs) people to see this movie. So that created, that made, uh, that created a buzz about all of us. Mm -hmm. They, the, uh, the distributors, uh, uh, who had already by then made their money back, uh, uh, said they're going to open the film in Pittsburgh. Would I go and, you know, promo it there? So I said, yeah, sure. So <laughs> I go to Pittsburgh and um, uh, uh, I do some local TV. I do an interview in the newspaper. And they get a limo for me. They bring me to uh, the theater, which co- coincidentally was managed by my father's cousin, who was the general manager of the theater chain that booked it. And I used to go to that theater as a kid and watch myself and, and in my head on the screen and pretend that I was in a movie 
that was <laughs> projected onto that screen, right? Mm. So then, like 15 years later, 12 years later, there I am fucking doing that exact thing that I fantasized about. <laughs> and here comes the, the best part for me back then. Several uh, women, young girls from my high school graduating class, who a short two and a half years earlier wouldn't give me the fucking time of day, <laughs> now suddenly standing in line to drop their drawers. Yeah. <laughs> And, and, and as I, I've said many times, I recall being with one of them and thinking to myself, I believe I have made the correct career choice. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So for, then. Oh, for sure. Was, yeah. But you see that that's I was I was, you know, uh, uh, plucking my own twanger then because it, that that particular uh, juice was very short lived. Yeah. And yeah, movies come and movies go. Right. Mm -hmm. So there are. Uh, uh, once that wave had hit the beach, I was just another out of work actor again. And trust me, nothing uh, uh, causes a, a, a woman's body parts to stay <laughs> dry like telling you're an out of work actor. Yeah. In New York. Okay. That's like, man, let me tell you. <laughs> so uh, um, I'm at a party one night and I'm lonely as shit right and I'm, I, I see a guy talking to a hot girl like a model looking girl mm -hmm. you know? and I, got, I edged myself closer to him uh, they, they were near the food so I kind of pretended I was hungry which I was <laughs> uh, uh, so I listen and this guy is telling this girl well yes I, I'm, I'm in the middle of developing my characters and trying to decide on who's the protagonist and what the journey is. And then I've constructed some scenes in the back and, and I'm listening. And this girl is fucking hypnotized. I don't know what this fucker is saying, but this girl is hypnotized. <laughs> so it turns out he was telling her he was a writer and you know, that just, wow. And they left together. <laughs> so I said to myself, I could do that. I could tell girls I'm a writer. Uh -huh. So when I, yeah, when I bought a bunch of books, right, and uh, learned some shit, learned the words and, you know, and went to parties, socialized, and suddenly I was a writer. And I was getting <laughs> late again, and I was a writer. And so one night I'm at a party, and I'm talking to some girl, and as usual, it's working. And I get a tap on my shoulder, and it turns out it's Lee Lacey, right? Uh -huh. and, he said, and he said to me, hey, listen, I have an office in California. I'd love to see that script when you're finished because <laughs> I want to get it to my agent. I think we could make a deal on that. That's fucking great. So I took him aside and I said, Hey, look, dude, I, I got to be honest with you. Guy to guy. I'm just doing this to get laid. There's no script. There's no anything, you know, I'm just <laughs> lying to get some, to, to get, you know, to be with someone. And he starts laughing and he said to me, is it working for you? I said, Oh yeah, it works all the time. He said, then you're an idiot. You need to be writing for real. He said, man, if you can get women to drop their pants for your words, can you imagine what you would happen if you actually wrote something? Oh, so, most definitely. So I took his advice. I wrote a script uh, and he gave it to his agent in L.A., a guy, the late Stan Kamen at William Morris. And suddenly um, I was a sold writer with a plane ticket to L.A. and a car and an office and an apartment 
and an agent, and there I was. Wow. I landed surfing on a wave. That's that. That is a cool story. I, remind me what that what that first script was. That was uh, I. I uh, I'll remind you in in a form of a, of, a, of a lesson. Okay. Okay. Uh, the the script was called the unseen. Right. And uh, it was uh, the storyline was a bunch of venomous snakes. Uh, escape from a, a crash truck in Central Park on a beautiful spring day, uh, <laughs> and when there's supposed to be, you know, a, a political rally and a bunch of things, and you know, it's just a snakes in a park kind of thing. Right? Uh-huh. And uh, it never got made because the lesson I learned in television was they they bought it, NBC bought it, they paid me, they had everything set up to start making the film with lead directing. And then suddenly there was a regime change at the top of NBC. And when that happens, what mostly always happens is they sweep away all the projects that are not actually in production. And then they bring in all the new, all new stuff because yeah. the people who now take over don't want other, want to deal with other people's shit. Mm-hmm. They want shit. And that's a, was a interesting lesson. And you know, I, I rationalized and said, well, okay, I sold the script. I got into the Writers Guild. I now have health insurance. I have a huge chunk of money in the bank. I have an agent. I have an office. You know, not so bad. I, worse things can happen. Of course. I could still be, you know, driving a cab in New York. Yeah. Now, I got to ask, um, you, you, so you did a movie about snakes in a park. Did you get anything from snakes in a plane then? No, no, this was in 1976, <laughs> so it was a little before that. I know, but may, maybe they borrowed from it. Maybe, maybe somebody oh. got a hold of it. <laughs> oh, really? I don't, I, you really can't borrow or anything. <laughs> you know, venomous snake around people who don't want to get bitten. How fucking yeah. difficult <laughs> Did anybody in your script say, get these motherfucking snakes out of this motherfucking park? No. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, I guess, I guess they're clear then. That's, that's Mr. Jackson. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I just saw a parallel there. Oh, you, you go right ahead. Yeah. So you're, uh, so you really got into the writing before, before you started, um, doing, yeah. doing the stand up so, out of the cat skills then. Yeah. So what happened was, um, I, the, in a meeting, my agents at William Morris said to me, you know, what else do you want to do? Cause they really didn't know that much about me. Uh, so I kind of told them, I gave them a, a history of, especially about my stand up stuff. And I said, yeah, I, I knew that, that Bud had opened uh, an improv in New York, I mean, in L.A., so I had already started to hang out there. I wasn't yet performing there, but because I knew Bud and I knew the, the crew or, you know, I knew what it was, it was, a, it was a good place for me to go, and it was down the block from uh, where, where I lived and where the office was. So um, they asked me if I wanted to do a set at the comedy store, and I said, sure. So... Um, they said to me, they, you know, a couple of days later, they, they said they got a call back from Mitzi and Mitzi Shore I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, she said she wouldn't give me any real spots until she sees me. Uh, but she would she would agree because it's William Morris calling that she would give me uh, a definite time on a Monday night. 
So, you know, I don't argue about, about that. I said, sure, no problem. So I, I set that date and then prior to that, went to the comedy store because I have this quirk about I don't really like to play places that I haven't seen. I haven't mm-hmm. sat in the audience and listened and watched and, you know, kind of like soaked in the vibe. Mm-hmm. I, I, I always t- try to go places first, just anonymously, just to kind of listen right. and feel or feel the vibe of the place. Maybe that's my hippie shit, but, you know, that's <laughs> just how it works. Um, so I started watching, you know, Steve Bluestein and Jimmy Walker and, you know, some guys – and some really, really good comedians, and Tom and his former partner, Tim Reed, mm-hmm. and, and Richard Pryor, you know, and I thought, wow, this fucking Catskill Mountain shit, I don't know, you know, I, I need some new material. So I ended up having to write, I, I wrote a brand new five minutes that was more LA, it was more geared towards, you know, like the, it was right, this was, you know, right, right around the time that star was supposed, you know, star was come out in May. Mm. There was a lot of press about that. <clears throat> so I, I wrote material that was much more hotel California ish, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I did it five minutes, you know, I didn't have any problem with the performing cause I had done all those club dates in the Catskills. So I did it once and it went fine and I did it second time and it went fine. And then the third time I did it, it was a, one of those wonderful kismet moments where it's audience is great and, you know, there's a lot of energy. The couple of comedians on before me did very well, which brings the energy of the room up. Never be afraid of comedians on, you know, in front of you doing well because that just means all your job is they're already primed. Your job is just like keep them there. Right. You know, just move the needle maybe a little. It's a, don't never be afraid of that. So these guys have done well. And I went on stage <clears throat> and I did very well. You know, it was, you know, it was a f- quick five minutes and everything worked. And I walked off to applause and I saw Mitzi sitting there and I go back to what I said every now and then you get these moments when you got a fucking captain in your own ship. Mm-hmm. I saw her there and she knew who I was and, you know, we exchanged hellos and whatever. And she knew I was the guy William Morris was pushing. And I just walked right up to her. I said, Mitzi, is it going to get any better than this? Does it need to be better than this? <laughs> <laughs> and she just looked at me and she said, okay, Mark, call in for spots. And that's how I became a regular. And I'm actually considered to be one of the comedy store's original paid regulars. Because this happened in 1976 pre-strike. Yeah. So I was, yeah, so I, I'm in that class of 77, mm-hmm. that, that famous class of 77. That's so, you, you, uh, Leno, Letterman, Dreesen, Dreesen, Michael Keaton, Mike Binder, Argus Hamilton, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, Johnny Witherspoon, who sadly just passed away, Paul mm-hmm. Mooney, uh, Richard and Jimmy Walker, they, they were ahead of us, so they, they you know, not really part of, of that crew. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robin, for certain, for sure. Um, yeah, we were all, you know, I closed my eyes and we were just all hanging together. You know, we were just in, in, in that time, Richard Lewis, part of that, Mm -hmm. um, you know, you, you could at any given moment back in, in those days, like you could walk into the improv and if you just freeze frame, you, you could look and see like Richard Lewis with Larry David, with Marvin Braverman, 
fucking to, I mean, it was just the Robin and I mean, it's just fucking amazing. That I, if I could go back in time, I guess that's where I'd go just to be in the audience to watch you guys. It was, it was, it was such a, a reality and a day to day existence right now back then. But when I look back on it, knowing what the truth was and what it really was, it's it's suddenly become surreal that that I could have been part of that, mm. you know, that that I was actually part of that. I mean, my name's on the wall. Comedy store has been on there for 40 years. You know, Mitzi put it on in like 1977 or something. Mm. However, that is. Yeah. I, again, it, it just I, I, I am. I'm all really shocked at, at the, the the fact that uh, I did all that shit. It's weird, and I'm still doing it. I'm still, you know, working. I'm still doing shit. Right, right. So, um, you did you did a few years at that, and you you kept on writing for TV shows and movies and stuff like that. So you you had that going on as well. Do you? Obviously, I think the the writing part probably um, made made your career more than the stand up. But which one did you like doing better? Uh, I like doing stand up more than anything. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the most fun I've ever had with my clothes on. Yeah, <laughs> and now that I'm well, now that I'm like seventy, it's probably the most fun I'm ever going to have. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. So it's literally the most fun. I, I, my wife even tells me that she watches, and I don't even perform as myself. I'll send you a link to uh, um, some current stand-up stuff I'm doing. That uh, the, uh, I did the comedy store tonight with Argus Hamilton. Argus and I are old friends, uh-huh. so uh, I'll send, I'll send you the link to that. You'll see me performing uh, uh, stand-up, but not as me as a character. I'll, you'll get that, but. Um, <clears throat> I I really there's just something about it, man. There's just you know when you get when you get so comfortable that you're not cocky and you're not arrogant, mm-hmm. you get on stage, uh, you know, uh, it just feels good. It just like really fucking feels good to 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 know that you're about to say something and they're all going to react and they're all going to do you know and you're moving the audience around uh, gently, but you're moving them around. Right. You know, it's right. there's something to that. Well, all these, all these people that, um, so, you know, people like, uh, Conan and, and all those folks that, you know, they did stand up, they did writing and then they got famous. Uh, they all keep coming back to doing stand up. So even when they were writing, they'd sneak out and go do a open mic somewhere because you, there's, there's no way to explain the rush you get when you do a good five, 10 minutes. There's no, just, there isn't, there's just no way. It's just, it's like how to release endorphins. Right. You know, and and really, I have that. to say when you're working on it, there is no, there's no feeling like even having a shitty set because at least you know where you stand when you walk away from it. Look, you know, it's, it's one of those, uh, uh professions where the rubber really does meet the road. Yeah. You know, you just, there's no getting around it. You just, uh, that's where, that's where it, it is. It, it, it's just, 
it's it's like that moment that I had with London at that hotel. You know, it's step up or step out. Yeah. You know, you, you and you may have to step out a few times before you get it together to step up. And then sometimes you just got to say to yourself, fuck it, man, this yeah. thing happening. <laughs> you know, like I walked off the stage. I didn't know Mitzi Shore from anything except that she was the owner of that store. Uh-huh. And and I wasn't getting anywhere unless I got through her. Yeah. And so I, I listened to the wave of the audience and the applause and the laughs. And I surfed right at her table on that wave, not, not you know, on, on a knock on the door. I just... I, I, I used that that energy, and and it worked. Yeah. Another fucking time, I got lucky. Yeah. You got you got to know when to take it. That's for sure. So let, I do want to talk about your your new act a little bit because um, you've been doing it for a couple years, uh, and um, you know, obviously, I I I know what you're doing because. Okay you hadn't been on the stage for a while and, and, um, you start getting, uh, itchy. It's kind of like a Coke addiction and, and you want to get back, you want to get back to it. So tell me a little bit about the new act that you're doing. So about, about, uh, four years ago, I got hit by a car in my neighborhood, Toluca Lake. And I, I got really, really, really racked up mm-hmm. badly. A lot of broken bones, a lot of shit. I'm okay now, but it, it's been a you know a trip. Mm-hmm. So, so when I was in the hospital, uh, they'd give me a bunch of drugs, and as I'm sure you know, drugs have a way of making your mind go to strange places. <laughs> yeah. Where I went was back to my stand-up days, and just in my mind's eye, just being able to watch my life then—not just me doing stand-up. Uh, but just my whole life, just how it felt to be that, to have a house in Laurel Canyon and bump down to the comedy store and then the improv and meet these guys and sit and hang out and write jokes with Letterman. And, you know, just that whole thing served as a kind of self-producing medication for me. Mm-hmm. My brain feel good to get rid of the pain. So I decided then that maybe I'll go back and do stand-up. So I wrote some shit, you know, and then I looked at it and I, I hung out at the comedy store a while because they are, they're nice to all of us, you know, original guys who are names on the wall kind of mm-hmm. people. Uh, I go and I hung out and I wasn't really intimidated. I just kind of came to the conclusion that no one's going to really give a shit, you know, <laughs> and, and I'm just an old guy and I had a career and move over. It's time for somebody else. Right. And I get that. I, I don't I don't fault the business for being like that. I don't fault audiences for being like that. It's just the way it is. So I then put it aside. You know, I was pissed off and I put it aside. I figured, well, I'll just go write something else. I'll write a book or something. Then one day I was getting out of the shower and I looked at myself in the mirror and, and uh, my, my hair was wet and, you know, beard, I have a long beard and my beard was all stringy and ripping and I got really down on myself you know I just said ah, you old fuck it's all you are as an old man you know just you know, some old motherfucker that nobody wants to hear I just beat the shit out of myself verbally mm-hmm. until I couldn't take it I couldn't take myself anymore and uh, uh, all of a sudden I started to get a twinkle in my eye because uh, I, I knew that a thought was coming to me so I, I pointed at myself and 
I said, like, uh, you know, don't go away, something like that. Mm. And uh, <laughs> I ran into my closet, and I had a wardrobe vision in my head, and I put on a, a black suit with a white shirt and a black tie, and I grabbed a fedora from my hat collection, and I, I, I looked at myself in the mirror when I got back into the bathroom, and I looked like a combination of my maternal grandfather and the rabbi from the synagogue that we belonged to, the Orthodox synagogue that we belonged to when I was a kid. And when I opened my mouth, what came out were words with a, a Jewish accent, uh-huh. an, old, an old Eastern European Yiddish accent. And because when I was a kid, all, you know, like I'm 70, right? But mm. when I was a kid, all old men looked like that. Yeah. So, so uh, I started talking and I, I looked at myself and I said, now they'll listen. <laughs> and I just went to, I just got so inspired that I went to work and for six months I wrote like, a, you know, and feverishly, I just wouldn't, you know, did nothing but write jokes for this guy. Mm-hmm. Like the character who in the mythology is a retired kosher chef uh, uh, who now wants to be a comedian. And so, yeah, I've been doing that since September. I went on stage the first time late September of 2017. Mm-hmm. I, one thing I want to say, you know, I'm, I'm 55, so I'm a few years younger than you, but um, one of the things that uh, works for me and I use it whenever I can, there's a novelty about being the oldest person on the stage. And, yes, sir. and I will use that novelty thing all the time. And you really need to have two different acts. If, if the majority of the audience is, um, your age or, um, older then you got one act. And if they're young, it's a young audience, you got another act. So it's, 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 uh, I use it to my advantage. And I think everybody, if, if you're old and you're in comedy, you should. Well, I, you know, what I've learned is that, with this with this particular character, um, because he looks the way I'm gonna, I just uh, uh, I'm gonna send you the link in a minute. Okay, you can see uh, this particular character comes with a kind of authority or a wisdom mm-hmm. that, that I probably don't possess uh-huh. uh, <laughs> personally because I'm mostly immature. Uh, uh, so. This this is a chance for me to be an old guy and then get out of it, you know, 20 minutes later. Uh, so I don't know. Uh, it seems to it seems to work. I've 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 done the, when you see this character, I will tell you that I have worked in front of all entirely African-American audiences. Mm-hmm. With this character and fine. I've worked worked it with millennial young, all kind of mixed millennials, Hispanics. Just the character is such that that um, people like him, and he has wisdom and a whimsy and uh, a kind of a whimsical. He's like a whimsical advice giver, mm-hmm. you know. So I don't know what can I say. I just. Uh, <laughs> As long as they keep laughing, I'm okay with it. Yeah, it's just uh, there's nothing better. And you know, I've uh, I've maintained since I started doing stand up that 
it's really one of the highest form of arts out there because, uh, you know, it's the only form of art that you just go up and throw up on stage. Uh, musicians, they practice and practice and practice. If you're a stage actor, uh, you've got a script. Um, if you're, uh, if you work in, uh, painting or sculpture, you know, if, if you, screw it up you can fix it but when you're on the stage in the moment there's n- I, there's nothing like stand up i don't think anything matches that rubber meets the road scott yeah that's that's what that's what i that's what i like about it cuz it's always on the edge mm-hmm. you know you're always on the edge you're just you're 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 a half a beat away from failure and a half a beat away from success yeah you're right right on the edge yeah it's really funny. I uh, I had decided to take this month off of um, getting on stage at all because my dad had surgery and um, I'm taking him to rehab and stuff like that and just just generally busy. And uh, I wanted to sit back and look at what I've written and what's good and what's not good. And one of my uh, friends had a birthday, so there was an open mic uh, this last Tuesday and I went in and uh, I went ahead and put myself on the list and uh, decided I wasn't going to do any material at all. I was just going to roast everybody in the room. And uh, that actually turned out better than most of my acts. So, you know, you got, I made a split decision in the moment and it worked. Okay. There you go. Yeah. So, um, do you, uh, Get, getting getting back to stand up and talking about what works and what doesn't work. Do you do you uh, keep an eye on the uh, new comics out there now? Uh, if I run into somebody, I don't you know I don't uh, <clears throat> search it out. If somebody I work with or do a show with, mm-hmm. how do you feel you know, that the medium you know. has changed since you did it the first time? Uh, I think, you know, I think too many people want to be comedians. Yeah. I think uh, not enough people know that there's a huge difference between being the funny guy at a party and standing on a stage and commanding an audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that a lot of people want to be comedians because they think it's easy and don't realize how difficult it is not just the being funny part, but, you know, understanding, you know, growth and creative growth and, you know, narrative and moving forward. And I mean, it's, you know, a lot of people don't know what a fucking punchline is. Exactly. Yep. You know, so. And it takes, if it's funny, it really, it really takes time to get that. And, uh, you you can't even expect to have a good five minutes uh, until you've been doing it at least a year. You, um, I think you got a little bit of a leg up because you were watching it for so long. But you know, I I didn't feel like I was even close to funny until I had a year under my belt. Yeah, see, I've never in my life never been anything but funny. Mm-hmm. So. Well, it, well, I mean, well screw, screw you then, Mark. No, I, no, no, no now I'm going to tell. Now I'm going to tell you the Jerry Lewis story. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I want to explain what I said, right? 
I'm a product of, uh, of my environment. My father was uh, a, a very fast-talking, slick aluminum siding salesman. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I, in the summer times, because I was raised by a single father, uh, I had nowhere to go. So a lot of times I'd go on the road with him. I'd go. He would do day trips, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> in aluminum siding... There's a canvasser, guy who knocks on the door, you know, goes in neighborhoods and knocks on the door and sees if anybody's been thinking about remodeling their house. And then there's a guy called the closer. This is Mr. Slick, the guy from the man from the factory, the boss, the big time. Mm-hmm. Geez, right? And he's only going to be here today. So if you're interested, you know, it's a, it's a sales pitch, right? Right. So my father had a routine from being on the road with him so much. I knew his routine. I knew that if he came out of the house to start measuring, what that means is that the people inside have asked him to give them a price. So that's a, that I knew it was going well, right? Mm. And I also knew when it wasn't going well, like when my father would just come out and just get in the car and whatever, so we'd leave. So one, one particular time, um, I'm in the car by myself. The canvasser's in the house with my dad. The door opens up. My dad comes out, but he doesn't start measuring the house. What he does is he walks towards the car. So I said, what's up? And he said, "Um, you know, it's a little weird in there, but I think we'd make a progress. And then my dad just said to me, hey, listen, uh, coincidence beyond coincidences, these people are huge Jerry Lewis fans. Uh Uh-huh. He said, yeah, the huge Jerry Lewis fan. So I said, I told him, I got, you know, I got a kid in the car and uh, he does a great Jerry Lewis impression. So I'm going to bring them to the door. And when I wave to you and they wave to you, just kind of stick your head out of the car <laughs> and you know, do the wildest Jerry Lewis impression you could come up with. Mm-hmm. So I said, yeah, sure. OK. So he goes back in the house. I keep my eye on the door. Five, ten minutes later, door opens up. You know, there are two people out of a Grant Wood novel, uh, a portrait, standing at the door, mom and pop, and uh, my dad and the canvasser. And they all four of them wave at me. So that was my cue, right? So I stick my head out of the window. And Dr. Bang Bang, hello, Dean, hello, whatever, I don't know. So I do this for like 45 seconds. And the people just are shaking their heads and they're applauding me like this. <laughs> They go back in. I go in the car. I take a nap, and I hear my dad coming out, and he's got the contract under his arm, and he's smiling, and his cigar is lit. Canvasser gets in the car. My dad gets in the car. We drive away. So as we're driving back to Pittsburgh, uh, um, I say to my dad, wow, who would have figured that out here Jerry Lewis fans so the canvasser says, what do you mean, Jerry Lewis fans? So I turn around and said, my dad told me that these people were Jerry Lewis fans. This is why I did the Jerry Lewis impression. So the canvasser starts laughing. He says, no, what your dad told him was that his son was in the car and that you forgot his medicine in Pittsburgh. <laughs> they weren't really interested. They were going to have to leave and to prove it. They'll show, he'll show you how badly his son is medicine. <laughs> so, so that's, that's how I grew up. The world I came out of. 
Is it any surprise, right? Is it any <laughs> fucking surprise that I do what I do? No. The surprise oh, would have, if I would have gone into the normal world. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've spent too many years in the normal story. world. That's one of many stories. That's just hilarious. What uh, if if you were to um, be uh, mentoring a new comic or somebody somebody who's just been doing it for a few months? What what do you think are the the top three things that they should do to become successful? Learn to listen, not 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 order take orders, but learn to listen to audiences and to other comedians. Uh, um, understand what a punchline is, and 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 find your own voice, mm-hmm. right? Write material that only you could do. You know, find your your particular point of view. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. uh, you know, that's pretty common among everybody I've talked to. That uh, um, first of all, um, everybody's going to tell you what the rules of comedy are, and none of them are right. Um, and okay. second off, until you find your voice, you're not going to be truly funny. That's right. Yeah. Find your voice is the most important thing. Yeah. Because it's got it's got to come from the heart. That's it. Yep. Well, I tell you, I tell you, Mark, this has been a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your your uh, time with your wife's family to uh, talk to me. I, I just uh, I'm I'm amazed at how generous uh, the the comedy folks are when when you when you reach out to them with something brand new and uh you know you and uh tom and i got a couple younger ones that i've talked to and it's just uh fantastic that you guys are so generous with your time uh no problem we're all just renting anyway yep (laughs) (laughs) uh my guest today was mark scheffler and uh you can find him all over YouTube, and I'm also going to. Uh, uh, I saw you sent me that link. I'm, uh, if you don't mind, I'll put that in the show notes. Sure. Okay. Cool. Well, thank thanks a lot, Mark. I really appreciate you being on the show. My pleasure. Have a good right. one. Good luck with this. Th- thank you.